The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2014, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This recording was from Friday, May 9th. Private Tasting Salon, West Coast IPAs and San Diego Craft Culture, featuring Ryan Brooks from Coronado Brewing Company, Steve Wagner from Stone Brewing Company, and Chuck Silva from Green Flash Brewing Company. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. We're going to get started in a, uh, right now. Uh, welcome to Savor, an American craft beer and food experience. Thank you all for coming. My name is Andy Sparhawk. I'm the craft beer program coordinator for the Brewers Association, and this is West Coast IPAs and San Diego craft beer culture. Uh, before I introduce our panelists, our salon uh, leaders, a uh, couple of... Uh, um, notes, uh, please use your saver glass uh, for each beer. Uh, just rinse with the water in front of you. Um, if more people come in, might need to scooch together a little bit better. Uh, we'll really bond in this next hour. And um, I just want to thank uh, our salon room sponsor, which is uh, Spiegelau. I see you guys got some glasses, so that's great. Thank you to them. Uh, West Coast IPAs, makes total sense to have these gentlemen up here. Uh, what better uh, group of guys to talk about the style uh, than three guys from the West Coast. Uh, and in front of me, or in front of you, uh, to the, the far uh, right is uh, Chuck Silva from Green Flash. In the middle we got Rick from Coronado, and Steve Wagner from Stone Brewing Company. Uh, please give it up for them. Hi, I'm Rick Chapman with Coronado Brewing Company. Um, our brewer couldn't be here to, this week because his uh, mother passed away. So you got me. I'm one of the owners of Coronado Brewing Company, founder. So I'm not a brewer. These two guys are brewers. So if there's any technical questions, we're going to go to them. But uh, we started about a month after Stone Brewing back in 1996 as a brew pub, uh, Coronado Brewing Company. And just recently, two years ago, we finished our production facility over in San Diego. Um, it's a 30-barrel system with 120-barrel uh, fermenters. We can do about 120,000 barrels at that facility once we're at full capacity. Um, today I brought um, a couple, we, we did our collaboration beer, but we brought our Frog's Breath IPA. It's a collaboration brew that we did with a Navy SEAL, uh, a retired Navy SEAL who, who comes to our restaurant, and uh, he's a home brewer. He won an award for this uh, at the fair in the homebrew um, competition, and so we did a collaboration with him on it. It's a, it's a 6.5% West Coast IPA, um, 70 IBUs. It's a really flavorful beer. It does very well for us. It's our second year that we've uh, had it in package, so we're sending it out nationally. Um, we're in 17 states and 11 countries, so we're getting it out across the U.S. We're not in D.C. proper, we're in Virginia, so you can get the beer over there, or in Pennsylvania now. So let's try the Frog's Breath IPA. So um, it's, it's a little unique too, right? You guys have some, uh, something else besides hops in there? We do. We have, uh, it's made with kaffir lime leaf, um, orange zest, and lemon zest. So it's kind of unique in that way. A lot of those flavors play around with the hops. Sure, I'll take a little more. That's what I need. <laughs> Feel free to either cue me or cue them to bring that in more order. So yeah. I'll, I'll ask you a question or two. Sure. Um, just. I already know the answer, but <laughs> you, brew, you brew more IPAs than Frog's Breath, too, right? We do. We uh, have our Idiot IPA, which is our Imperial IPA. It's uh, 90 IBUs, 8.5% alcohol. It's a, it's a very well-balanced West Coast IPA. Uh, we also brew our Islander IPA, which just won gold at World Beer Cup. Um, it's a phenomenal West Coast IPA. Uh, when we started out back in 96, we didn't... We didn't make IPAs. We made golden, we made an amber ale, um, we made a pale, and then shortly thereafter, the whole IPA craze started. You guys, 
probably started it, yeah? No, we didn't start it. You didn't start it? <laughs> Who was in San Diego? No. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll talk a little bit. I'll talk a little bit about the, uh, at least the history of West Coast IPA from my perspective. Um, I think the uh, you know the original was the Anchor Liberty Ale that they released in 1975. That was, uh, or actually I think late 75 or early 76 in honor of the uh, the U.S. bicentennial, and that was an all Cascade based on an English IPA. It's the first one, as far as I know, of the West Coast IPAs. Um, and I think they, they didn't do it every year, but they did it for a few years after that. And then uh, I think today they probably make it year-round. Um, and then let's see, my personal experience, I started my brewing career up in the Pacific Northwest. And the first uh, amazing IPA I ran into up there was Terry Farendorf's Bombay Bitter at the Steelhead Brewery in Eugene. And that was probably the early 90s, I'm guessing 92 or 93. Uh, fantastic beer, a lot of Chinook in the dry hop, which was just a new experience for me at that time. And there weren't a lot of IPAs up in the Pacific Northwest then either, uh, at least that I ran across. And then when we decided to start Stone, um, we were looking very seriously at San Diego, so we were spending some time down there. And I ran into the uh, Swami's IPA at Pizza Port in Solana Beach, uh, another fantastic IPA. I think, it's, I think it's a double IPA almost. I mean, it was pretty strong and really hoppy, a lot different than anything I'd ever had. And then, of course, the Blind Pig IPA from uh, Vinnie Chalurzo at, at uh, Temecula's Blind Pig Brewery was around at that time. And so those were really the two, you know, the three sort of um, second wave of, of West Coast IPAs in, in my experience. And those were the ones that really inspired us at Stone. And uh, so we, for our first year anniversary, so we opened the brewery in July of 96. For our one year anniversary in July of 97, we released Stone IPA. Um, you know, it's when you're designing recipes, sometimes they take a long time and a lot of uh, versions to get it right. And that was one of those beers that first time we, we brewed it and nailed it. And, uh, you know, we dry hop it with a lot of Centennial hops and uh, just loved the way it turned out. You know, you might think it was an overnight success or something, but we didn't sell a lot of that beer for a lot of years. I think we were a little bit ahead of the curve. Um, we might have been the first brewery to have a full-time bottled, brewed and bottled version of a, an IPA on the West Coast. I'm not sure. I haven't been able to, to prove that, but we think it is. Um, and, but we've been making it ever since, and it's, it's grown every year. Now it's almost 50% of our business. It's our best-selling beer, Stone IPA. Yeah, and then uh, Chuck asked how many IPAs we make. We have uh, 24 tap draft handles at our brew pub and at our tasting room at our production facility. And we usually, we have a half a dozen to 10 of our own IPAs on at one time. So we're West Coast, people want that IPA flavor. There's a whole different spectrum. You know, we got the fruity ones, the hoppier ones. So, and then we'll have more uh, British style IPAs as well. So we're, yeah, we're very IPA hit. IPA heavy out there on the West Coast. Anything you want to point out about the frog spread? Um, yeah, it's just, you know, we have a large military presence in, in Coronado. Um, we have, we're surrounded. Uh, we have the Navy SEALs that train on the amphibious base, and then we have NAS North Island. So we support the military there. Um, we do all kinds of events with them, and wounded, wounded warriors were very involved in that. So. This beer is very special to us. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. All right, so, yeah, let's cheers. Cheers, yeah. cheers. cheers everybody. Cheers. Welcome. All eyes. You guys know about that, right? You can't cheer somebody without looking them in the eye. Because otherwise you're not trustworthy. Shifty. So I've already been introduced, but I'll introduce myself, Chuck Silva, brewmaster at Green Flash Brewing Company. And I, I wanted to speak a little bit to the history as well, um, San Diego IPA. I came on the scene later. Uh, I didn't start brewing commercially until 1998 and uh, actually applied to Stone Brewing Company. Um, no, I, I didn't do an internship, but uh, uh, I did an internship actually with Chris Leonard at Hops Bistro and Brewery, and then I and I worked with Paul Segura, who's now the brewmaster at Carl Strauss, a little bit. Um, he was actually at Hang Ten Brewing Company at the time, so which ultimately is where I got my start. So um, with that 
you know, doing some of that internship, um, it, it landed me a job with Paul in, uh, in 1998. And we actually were, were brewing IPA uh, at Hang Ten, and uh, maybe we, we started brewing the IPA after I, after I arrived. I don't remember the exact timing, but uh, um, it was Pale Ale first, the Pintail Pale Ale, I remember that, Hang Ten Brewing Company. You know, nice surfboard names, the pintails shaped, and uh, some other surf names as, um, you know, Pizza Port has uh, a lot of those uh, type names as well. Uh, a lot of fun. Nice brew pub. We had um, tent taps uh, to be able to serve all those beers. But that gave me a good start in the industry. And uh, I had been drinking uh, Stone Pale Ale and, and IPA, and uh, over at Coronado had the, the Golden and the... The Mermaid's Red. I think the first uh, brewing T-shirt I bought in San Diego was that Mermaid's Red. Great, great T-shirt, nice logo, and and I wore that thing out. But uh, vintage, exactly. So, um, so my foray into into IPA was um, I was already brewing IPA as a home brewer. I started home brewing in 1994, actually in in uh, Springfield, Virginia. So I started my hobby out here on the East Coast, and then. Uh, um, just so happens that the the the, the 95 495 exchange uh, consumed my house, and uh, they they purchased my house as a right of you know domain whatever, and and uh, so it, it took the opportunity to relocate, and ended up in San Diego, and with that I had already been looking at brewing schools, and I took that opportunity to go to brewing school, and uh, went to the American Brewers Guild in, in February, and then landed a job in April and then Hank Tenbury Company. So all that being said, that's, that's when I got on the scene, which, was, which there was already a lot of IPA out there in the world is really the point that I'm getting to. And then uh, worked for Paul there for a year and a half. We were doing uh, our IPA at the pub and then uh, went to uh, Hops Bistro and Brewery for about four years. And I started brewing IPA there. And uh, um, I, I was using Columbus and Cascade and different things, and I finally discovered Simcoe hop. And so I think part of what, what distinguishes West Coast IPA is hop varieties. And so that's what we're going to talk more about hop varieties today. And uh, so Simcoe is, is a low cohumulin, which means it's a, a mellow, bitter, smooth, bitter hop. And that uh, was more newly developed. So I got to start using it there at hops before we closed hops. And uh, we made a, a beer called Hop Maniac IPA that uh, did win a bronze medal the very year. And actually, I was at the JBF when we closed the restaurant. So kind of a bittersweet moment, pun intended. <laughs> so bittersweet is definitely a good descriptor for IPA and West Coast IPA. But definitely the focus is from new hop varieties. Um, you mentioned Chinook, for sure, and Cascade. And so those were the early varieties, and then we started to get other varieties, Columbus and Simcoe, and, and certain varieties that make the beer more pungent, and Centennial with piney, and Simcoe with you know, grapefruit and tropical notes. So that's the kind of things that we're finding in the beers today. Uh, so I just want to talk about a little bit more about that history, and then... Um, yeah, oh, back, I guess I, back on the frog's breath, it, it, ours is made with the Centennial, so that plays real nice with the citrus. So you're getting layers in too, and I think that's important to note that from the West Coast, um, you know, you, you could do, you can certainly make a single hop out of Centennial or Citra or mm -hmm. Columbus or whatever. But I think uh, using more of them, more of the hop varieties, makes it more extravagantly hot. Yeah, yeah. Like our idiot IPA has the four C hops and Nugget in it, so we have five hops in that beer. It's it's a very hop-forward beer, but it's very balanced as well. So if you get a chance to try that, do so. And our, our first IPA we made was the Islander IPA and probably a year after we opened it. Sure they get IPAs. Um, so it, we've tweaked it over the years, and it's gotten very good. So it's an awesome beer. It's respected in the community. So, um, and, and I just want to add to the, the, the frog spread. So the kaffir lime leaf, it just plays nicely as a citrus component to what, what might already have some citrus hop components to it, right? And, uh, and 
be aromatic, so of course match nicely. So uh, again, going forward, I hop forward to. That's funny. <laughs> so hop forward in my career, uh, hops. Eastern Brewery did close, and I went to work for Carl Strauss for about a year. Not as hop-centric of a brewery, but definitely a stalwart brewery. They were one of the, the early, the first microbreweries in San Diego. And um, so I got some larger brewery experience. So at, that was my first foray out of brew pub and larger scale. So it was a 60-barrel brew house, and we had 240 barrel fermenters as well as some other you know, smaller fermenters for single batching and split batches and stuff like that. And, and there was uh, several yeast strains being used to create different beer styles, a lot like the brew pubs because they owned several brew pubs as well. So it was really nice to work there to be able to brew in, in a couple of the brew pubs that were brewed in, in Carlsbad and also at the production facility. And then uh, I was just there for a short stint, and and then I heard that Green Flash didn't, you know, their brewer had left, and they needed a, a brewmaster there, um, and so I considered the option, went and met with the, the owner, uh, Mike Hinckley, he's the founder there, him and his wife, Lisa Hinckley, and um, discussed the, the option and ended up landing the job, and so I left Carl Strauss to, it was a bit risky to, to join a, a brewery that maybe was struggling a little bit, whether it's two years into their startup and they needed a little help on the develop, on the recipe development front, but I was confident there. Uh, the new thing for me was that we were packaging. So it was a, a bottling brewery, so I didn't have any pack, packaging experience. So I had to learn that, you know, overnight. <laughs> so um, now within that, that first uh, six months, um, I brewed a couple new beers. The first one was a barley wine for our second anniversary beer. So I was there just in time to brew second anniversary beer for the Strong Ale Festival at Pete Support. Uh, Pete Support um, has been a huge supporter of all San Diego craft beer and in fact held um, and promoted uh, craft beer through Cas the, the Real Ale Festivals through Cask Beers and Strong Ale Festival annually uh, in December. So I got to get my first new beer at Green Flash Brewing Company um, with a barley wine. Um, and a hoppy barley wine at that, inspired by Sierra Nevada with their Bigfoot. So, but I used Columbus and I made it 85 IBU and a little over the top. Okay, so, but anyway, so we're, get, we're talking about IPA. So getting on to IPA. <laughs> um, within that first couple months, um, or maybe a couple months later, Mike came to me and he says, I want, I want to brew an IPA. I want you to brew an IPA. And I want you to make it a benchmark IPA. And then we're talking 2005 going into 2006 here. So we already have lots of IPA. Stone's got lots of history with their IPA and, and many other breweries across the country. And um, so I took that as an awesome opportunity, especially after my bittersweet moment back in 2003 with uh, winning that award and closing the brewery at the same time. So uh, I brought that, the, you know, that, that recipe and that experience to the table and he says, well, when you said to me he wants to make it a, a benchmark IPA, I said, well, that's going to have to be strong and it's going to have to be really bitter. I said, you know, it might have to be 7% if we're going to redefine, you know, the benchmark. And that's, he's like, that's what I want. I want you to reset the benchmark for what IPA is, what it can be. And so I said, okay, so here we go. 7% was the target, 95 IBU, pound per barrel dry hop. And so we launched that beer. We actually uh, tapped it March 1st, 2006. And um, by August 1st, it was our number one selling beer. And so that is now our, our flagship beer, and it's more than 50% of our sales to date. Um, so that's West Coast IPA. We don't have IPA in the glass today. Um, I did want to talk about that because that was really a new direction for, for Green Flash. And, uh, and that beer was, it was and is extravagantly hopped. We, we used only three hop varieties, but we do five hop editions, two editions of Simcoe, two editions of Columbus or CTZ and then finish with Cascade and the Whirlpool, and then we dry hop it with four different hop varieties, um, reinforcing some of the hops that we have in the boil, the Simcoe and Cascade, 
And then we, when I originally brewed it, it was uh, also Amarillo and Centennial. I've since switched the Amarillo out with uh, Centennial, more of a logistics thing than anything, but uh, a good substitute nonetheless. So that extravagantly hot beer set the new stage for Green Flash going forward with the IPAs that we make. And now what you have in front of you here today is called Road Warrior. This is a beer that we made last year in our Hop Odyssey series. We launched a Hop Odyssey series to launch a, a new draft beer um, every other month last year. So starting in February, uh, and then two months later, a new beer, a new beer. Well, one of the beers was an Imperial Red Rye IPA with a newly available mosaic hop in the dry hop. And that's what we have today. So we've renamed that beer to be Road Warrior as a tribute to all the Green Flash uh, Road Warriors, our salespeople and, and myself and anybody that's out you know, spreading the good word about Green Flash Brewing Company. Uh, so what, that's how the, the beer was named. But um, what you have here as far as hop extravagance goes is, um, is, is featuring the mosaic. And uh, when that came out, a lot of us got a hold of it um, in a good quantity. So we were able to launch that, that with this um, particular beer last year in draft. And this year we also have it in draft and in 22 ounce. So that's the first time we've, we've bottled this beer. Um, so anyway, this is Road Warrior with uh, Mosaic and Amarillo in the dry hop. And uh, I think you'll find it very aromatic. So cheers. Cheers. <laughs> You guys used a uh, mosaic? This one? Yeah, actually, we, we uh, quite, are quite fond of mosaic, and the, the beer that I have tonight, too, uh, we've used mosaic in. And actually, uh, we re recently released our first session IPA um, in March, and we use a lot of mosaic in the dry hop of that. It's our go-to IPA. Uh, unfortunately, we have a large quantity of mosaic for this year, but not enough to uh, make as much go-to IPA as we could sell, so. <laughs> a little bit limited. Yeah, that's the problem with these new uh, hop varieties, and is in the beginning there's a limited availability of acreage, and, and then it, it grows as the demand grows. Hopefully, hopefully, yeah, with the, with the demand, of course. I know our brewers play around with that. I'm not sure which beer. I know. It was, I it was a loaded I, question. I, I know you do. and I forget which one you have. I, I believe the Sock Knocker, which is uh, coming out. We, this is in our Brewmaster series, the Frog's Breath. So we do that kind of similar to what you guys do. Uh, about every two months, we release a beer. All our collaboration brews are in that series as well. So I'm pretty sure the Sock Knocker has the mosaic in it. But yeah, like you say, those, those fun hops are you know, sometimes hard to get. But it's nice when we get them can play around with them. I'll, I'll talk about the mosaic a little bit um, because it is a new variety. It, it has a wonderful fruitiness, which is actually kind of, um, I don't know, just very pleasant. Maybe some people describe it as, as having a blueberry uh, note. Um, of course, like I said, it's layered in, in this beer with other hops as well. So it's gonna be hard to distinguish that one in particular, but it, it is very evident. Um, but it's also very pungent. Its uh, parentage is uh, Simcoe and Nugget from the breeding program. Nugget is very, very fruity and it's uh, softer, cleaner, bitter, uh, as well as Simcoe. But I thought the, the mosaic came out um, when, you, when you put it in the boil, you get more bitterness. When you put it later in the kettle, you get more flavor. And then in the whirlpool, you get the aroma. So depending on how you use it will, will be dependent upon what you get out of it. And then including it in the dry hop, it's going to give you a nice fruity nose. And I'd say that's one of the, you know, the factors that's continuing to drive uh, creativity with the West Coast IPAs and stuff is all these new hop varieties coming out. You know, I mean, a lot of new ones being developed uh, domestically in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of new ones coming from New Zealand and Australia and other places. And it's uh, pretty exciting. It's a lot of fun experimenting with them. But as Chuck said the challenge is that sometimes the uh, demand outstrips the supply as they plant the acreage and it takes a you know a couple of years for plants to mature to be able to produce uh, enough of the hops. So. <laughs> sometimes we make an awesome beer and like, we want to produce this in production and 
We're doing good on time. Uh, um, right now, uh, I believe your beer is coming out, so we can talk about that. But I have a question while uh, everyone's sipping on that is, uh, you've talked a lot about dry hopping, and maybe, uh, maybe someone's new to this whole thing. What, what is dry hopping? And it's kind of a two-part question of, you know, is, is a West Coast IPA, is it the bitterer the better? You know, oh, but you you guys have been talking about Centennial and all these different types of hops and the flavors that they provide. Uh, is IBUs just important? Explain uh, that. You know, first the technique, and then how does it play in with West Coast IPAs? Let me take a crack at this one. All right. <laughs> so uh, dry hopping is actually the addition of hops to the fermenter uh, part way or towards the end of fermentation of the beer. So. You know, we add hops in the kettle for bitterness and in late, late kettle towards the end of the boil for some flavor and aroma components. We use a whirlpool in our brewery, which is kind of a holding tank before it goes to the fermenter. We put hops in there that also contribute a smaller amount of bitterness and some flavor and aroma. Uh, but to get the really intense hop, hop characters that have kind of become, uh, you know, the, the hallmark of the West Coast IPAs, you really need to add the hops as late in the process as possible. So after the fermentation is well underway, a lot of the blow-off has already uh, taken place, you know, so it's not blowing off hop aroma and things like that. That's kind of when we add our hops to the fermenter, and we'll let them sit in there for anywhere from a week to two weeks to, to really infuse the beer with that hop flavor and aroma. Um, you know, we filter most of our beer, so that, I mean, that can strip out a little bit of it. Some, some breweries don't uh, filter as much, you know, if they're not shipping their beer as far or whatever, it can be a, a stable stability factor. But um, the, that dry hopping was, I think, what really set apart our Stone IPA, and that was something we had learned from, you know, from Blind Pig and from uh, Pizza Port with their Swamis too. I think they were dry hopping that one, and so it's, uh, I mean, it's a great technique, and I, I think it's, uh, it's almost required for a West Coast IPA yeah, these days. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> yeah, and maybe not exclusively, but I think uh, to be a West Coast IPA, if you're not dry hopping it, you're missing the mark, um, and. It, also, to that point, I'll, I'll point out uh, something you said about Pacific Northwest, that they weren't necessarily brewing IPA um, back in the day. Um, and I still think a lot of the, maybe some of the older school breweries aren't necessarily dry hopping or not dry hopping as much. Or I think Hotback was more popular. So Hotback is on the hot side. How many, how many people here have brewed or been present for a brew, whether at home or, oh, that's pretty good. Pretty good, awesome. Uh, so, so you guys are getting the terms, I hope, and then you understand the difference between a hot back. So a hot back would be after the brew, after the kettle, after the whirlpool, and before it gets chilled. So then it would go through uh, another container vessel that is loaded with hops, and it's most likely whole hop counts. And then uh, it imparts uh, yet more uh, hop aroma and flavor, and then it's cooled and fermented. Now, what we're talking about is during the fermentation process, um, you can still lose a lot of that character uh, the, through the fermentation and the blow off, and then actual yeast, depending on your yeast, can really actually consume and take up some of those compounds that are hot flavors. And in our yeast in particular that we use, um, not, and not just aroma flavor, but also bitterness. That's important to, to understand too. You know, it's about bitterness. So it also, so your yeast strain can actually take up some of the hot bitterness. And um, so what we're talking about with dry hopping is, is reinforcing uh, fresh hop aroma and flavor that we've probably lost uh, a bit of during the fermentation process. So adding, you know, fresh, uh, whole pellets, fresh pellets, um, pellets for you guys? Yeah, so I don't, I don't think anybody uses cones except for uh, if you hang a bag, like Sierra Nevada hangs a bag, and that's really old school, but there's, it's difficult to get the surface area exposure. When you hydrate a hot pellet that looks like a little, you know, uh, rabbit food, yeah, that's really the best description, isn't it, the alfalfa pellet? So that, that pellet gets hydrated, but in order for it to become that pellet, it's a whole hop cone, it goes into a hammer mill, it gets hammered, it becomes pulverized into a powder, and it gets compressed through a dye, and it, it lops off. 
And then, uh, so we have these pellets. And, and they, they have better storage ability, and then when they're hydrated, they have tiny particles. So we have the best surface area exposure in the beer to get flavor and aroma and solubility of the essential oils between the alcohol and the essential oils. So dry hopping, to me, there, there's no other way. And we, we do one pound per barrel. Uh, we actually increased the West Coast IPA to be a, a pound and a half per barrel recently. The, the Road Warrior was two pounds per barrel, you know, one of each, uh, a pound of each, the Mosaic and, uh, and the Amarillo. But uh, and I, think uh, you should, I think you should introduce your beer. It's, it's on the table. Okay. I was going to add one more thing about dry hopping. It's, it's definitely a, a process that is done to make a better beer. It's not... It's a very expensive undertaking, you know. Be besides adding a whole bunch of hops late in the process, hops are expensive. It, uh, you know, it actually soaks up a lot of beer into the hops. That then you, it, you have a hard time separating out to actually have beer to package from that. And it also adds a lot of time in the brewing cycle. You know, like I mentioned, a week to two weeks extra in the tank. I mean, that is just, you know, you could be putting another batch of your pale ale through there or something like that. We have to get all like those that. hops back out of the beer. I know. So it, it's a diff it makes it more difficult for us. So we're making but we, job Yeah, but we do it because of the result. I mean, there's just no other way to, to get that sort of hop character. Um, I was going to mention one other thing, too, about the bitterness you asked about. I think, you know, at the beginning, I think there was kind of an arms race in bitterness, you know, everybody trying to make the most bitter beer. And, and you know, we were as guilty of that as anybody and had a lot of fun doing that. Um, but I think now with all these new hop varieties, it's really changed the focus. And I think people are, you know, that, that pursuing that bitterness was kind of a one-way, you could only go to a certain point and then it didn't matter anymore. And now with all the new hop varieties and the, you know, the opportunity to blend them and to, to use them later in the process with dry hopping and things like that, that's become the really interesting part, uh, for me anyways, of uh, West Coast IPAs right now, all the amazing flavors and aromas that can come out of that part of the process. So. All right, I'll speak to bitterness. <laughs> All right, we, we probably make some of the, the most bitter IPA out there with, with you guys as well. But uh, with West Coast, it's, it's testing at 95 IBUs in the laboratory. It's not just a theoretical number on paper, which a lot of brewers use the theoretical number as opposed to a test number. So just fire beware on that. But it, it, it's not all about the bitterness. You know, the bitterness is something that, that's in the beer to create the balance. And I think the reason why we went so high is we wanted to go for a bitterness that would be a quality bitter, but it would last and it would hold the beer for a longer period of time. So uh, all those delicate flavors that we put in the beer without dry hopping, it is delicate. It actually is more volatile and travel with heat and light and just age and oxidation. We try to minimize any oxygen pickup in the process, but all those things affect and work adversely against those hop aromas and flavors. So I wanted to have enough hop bitterness to survive and flavor as the hop aroma began to diminish in the bottle. So, so we went for a higher uh, hop rate in, uh, initially. In the West Coast IPA in particular is what I'm speaking about because that was the first iteration. But uh, So that's, that was our approach initially. Of course, you know, with that whole benchmark setting thing, we had to go big. <laughs> All right, so uh, the next beer we have in front of us, um, you know, to give a little background on this, we, when, for instance, our Stone IPA, we only use three hop varieties in that beer. You know, it's a, a bittering hop, uh, usually a magnum, and then we finish it with Centennial and a little bit of Chinook in the dry hop. Um, so this beer is a, is a lot different than that. We've been experimenting with a lot of different hop varieties. And this was a beer that was brewed at our Liberty Station brew house at our newer restaurant down in the Point Loma area of San Diego. It's a 10-barrel brew house. And our brewer, Chris Ketchum, down there brewed this beer. And uh, he was going to make a triple IPA. So this one's pretty strong. It's about 11% alcohol, 24.5 uh, original gravity Play-Doh. Finished it at about 5.5. Uh, and he pretty much used a laundry list of hops in this one. It's uh, a lot of bittering hops. There's, uh, I know there's Magnum, there's Green Bullet, uh, there's Mosaic, there's Citra. There is uh, actually some Sterling and Liberty too, which are kind of more you know, derivative of noble hops, so you get a little bit of that grassy character in there. Um, and then it's dry hopped with Mosaic, Citra, Amarillo, and some Green Bullet as well. So. Uh, it's a, kind of unusual for us. We don't usually use this many hop varieties in a beer, but uh, I like don't the way it's using up all my green bullet. Yeah, <laughs> I know Chuck makes a beer with green bullet too, but it's uh, um, 
so yeah, so it's a, a pretty strong beer. Uh, you know, I get some some of the notes from the mosaic. I mean, a little bit of the berry. Some I get some stone fruit. I think from some of the others. Some a little bit of peach. Um, maybe some some lime and some grassiness from maybe from the green bullet. I mean, I don't know. How do you describe green bullet? What what sort of character does it give to the beer? It's pretty pungent, actually. Yeah. Um, similar in a way, like Columbus is pungent. Mm -hmm. It adds hop. It really adds hop pungency and intensity, of flavor and aroma. Um, I don't know. I, I think I'd have to have some in front of me to describe the aroma right now. It's, yeah. It's kind of complex. Yeah. Well, this one has a lot going on in it, and. Uh, it's called, Chris named it, it's called sesquipedalian, which is a very long word to uh, describe a very long word with lots of syllables. So I think he was uh, inspired by somebody at our company who uh, likes very long words and is a little bit long-winded, so I'm not, I'm not sure who that was. But, so uh, it's anyways. a big beer, but it's pretty smooth. Yeah, sure. Cheers. Yeah, actually, in this one, we also used, uh, I mean, the base malt was Pilsner malt, but we used some Victory malt as well to give it a little bit of that uh, biscuity toastiness in there, and it kind of helps balance out some of the hops. Sesquipedalian? Uh, there's a name written out right here. <laughs> it might be helpful. After I finish this beer, don't ask Over me there. the name again, okay? <laughs> the one on the corner. Uh, yes and no. You know, I mean, part of the, it wasn't necessarily to be an experimental platform for us, but we wanted to, because it was going to be our second large restaurant in San Diego, we wanted to be able to offer unique beers that were only brewed there. So that was really our, our first thought in having the, uh, the brew house there. Because now we have a, we have a five barrel pilot system at our main Escondido brewery as well. So we've got, you know, lots of opportunities for our brewers to do that. But as it turns out, it has become a, a fun place to experiment and do special beers. And uh, we have a program where we rotate our brewers from Escondido down there for a couple months at a time, and they get to brew their recipes and do things too. So it's, it's, it's turned into a great creative outlet for us, and uh, we're getting a lot of fun beers out of there. So. All right, I've got a good, I feel like I want to be a moderator at the moment. So, so here's, a, here's a good question that, that maybe not everybody's thinking about, but because we have this beer on the table, it brought it to mind for me. And then maybe, Rick, you can speak to the difference, too, like between Idiot IPA and Islander IPA. But as the beer becomes uh, bigger, bigger in alcohol, uh, the balance becomes different. And, and uh, this actually kind of goes back to Blind Pig a little bit. Balance between alcohol and hops versus malt and hops. It's, it's a difference. And actually, um, beer this big with the amount of hops in there it, it seems kind of mellow instead of yeah. aggressively hopped and bitter but it's just the it's just kind of the way it turns out yeah. um, maybe you guys can talk a bit about that wow it's only a 75 ibu beer which is pretty low for a you know what you might consider a triple ipa by uh alcohol volume so it's uh it wasn't intended to have a high level of bitterness too yeah, and I, when I drank this, I thought it was maybe 9%. 11 what? Yeah, so, and that's similar to like our Idiot IPA. It's 8.5%, but I, to me, it drinks a lot smoother than, than our Islander IPA, just because the way we balance it out with the, with the barley. So, yeah. I think the old school mentality was to balance malt sweetness with hops. And I mean, that's really where hops comes from. It's a balancing herb where, where uh, you know, we used to not have hops in beers. And uh, it was other, you know, sweet and bitter herbs. And, and then uh, hops came along and, and then that started changing things a bit. And then uh, the Germans adapted it and said, no, this is the only way we'll make beer. And there were still some English kings saying, no, we want our bitter or our sweet, our sweet ales. And, uh, but uh, as the, uh, oh, what, what's the uh, South, Carolina, South Carolina brewery? They call it the pernicious weed. Yeah. A wicked weed. Oh, wicked weed. Okay. So anyway, there's a couple that, it, it, it's, a, it's a bitter herb, right? So that's why we use it, but there are other qualities. And as the breeding programs uh, develop new varieties, we're finding other characteristics. 
and that's what's making a difference in our beers, the citrus components, not just floral. Um, noble hops you mentioned a little bit, they tend to be grassy and smooth and mellow, but um, they become you know, more floral and even more citrusy, lemony, limey, grapefruit, and they get, they get more and more intense and complex as we go. I was in the experimental hop field um, the last couple of years and had that opportunity to go up to Yakima and go into that, that breeding, the HBC field, and um, as well as at uh, Loftus Ranch, and we were able to pull hops right off the, the vine, and, and you know we put them in our palms, we, we, we warm them up, we smash them up and, and get the aromas off it, and I've smelled a couple that smelled like pina colada. Because they have coconut, yeah, right? It's funny. But, but they really, I swear, it was like a pina colada because it was also lime. It was coconut and lime. And I was like, okay, well, that's just a pina colada in my hand right there. So. But it just gives you an example of how there is some diversity in the, in the hop varieties oh, yeah. and the breeding program. We ready for the next beer? Yeah, you we'll have start a question? The, I could ask a question. If oh, okay. While we're, uh, we're getting to the final beer, uh, Steve, I'm so uh, glad that you talked about, you know, kind of talking about a, an arms race with uh, bitterness. Um, I kind of feel, you know, as the consumer, uh, as we become beer geeks and everything like that, we place too much emphasis on the number that's included, uh, the IBU number. Talk a little bit about that because Green Flash is so into to bitterness. I know you, your IPA was probably one of the bitterest at the time, and probably all of you have had super bitter beers. As the consumer and as a beer beginner, should I worry about that number? And aren't there, you, you talked about yeast and everything. There are so many right. other factors that goes into what we perceive as bitterness. Talk about should right. we really care if a beer has 50 IBUs or 100 IBUs? Well, really what it comes down to is, is what's in the glass and what it tastes like. But we're, with respect to IBU and, and our, our high IBU and our yeast selection that allows for that IBU to translate into the finished beer. So that, that is important to us and our beer. However, it is a smooth bitter. I chose hops specifically to produce a smooth bitter beer. So I think even when you had the Road Warrior, it's a high IBU. I think it's 80 or 85. And that's pretty high still. And, um, but it's still smooth enough and it's in balance enough with the malt and the alcohol. And to me, that's important. You can have bitterness that is maybe even at a lower number that's harsh and brash and not pleasant. And so I think that that comes down to the brewer's experience on how to execute the hop selection and the, and the layering of the hops and, and the proper balance. But it, it does come down to hop selection as well. Yeah, and I think it's just, I, I think people's palates, you know, if you're just drinking the bitterest beers all the time, it, it becomes, you kind of become immune to it, and it can be very one-dimensional, right? And it, so it's, it's nice to mix in different types of IPAs that feature more of the new hop varieties and more focused on the aroma and the flavor rather than bitterness. And then when you go back to a really bracing bitter beer, it's like, wow, that's really great, you know? But, it's, uh, you know, those, those beers don't tend to sell a lot. Um, if you're, you know, talking about the really high bitterness beers, they're kind of, uh, they're fun to make, they're fun to drink a little bit of, but most people don't drink a lot of those beers either. You know, it's just the way it is. So, you know, we, we did that we with our... We both have some pretty high hoppy bitterness beers that sell well. Yep. But not, not without balance, not without the Yeah, exactly. Balance. I think you, you touched on the balance and that's really, a, you know, it's kind of a funny subject to talk about with IPAs, but it, it really is true, right? I mean, there's a... You know, you can have a very bitter beer that is that is well balanced, and that's a, a beautiful beer to drink. And you can have a beer that's not as bitter, but seems way out of balance and way too bitter. So, that's a, you know, that's part of the art. One of the real challenges these days is you know these session IPAs are becoming very popular, and that's a real challenge to make a session IPA with the right level of bitterness and then still featuring the great hop flavor and aroma. Really challenging, but when you get it right, it's a beautiful beer. You know, at four four and a half percent alcohol, it's wonderful. Now, now you've got to get back into the good malts to get that layering of, for the balance. IBUs a very well-balanced beer. So, But what Steve said about the, the smaller beers, the smaller beers are harder to make, and you balance those with all those hops is, is challenging. But we're all 
rising to the challenge out there on the West Coast. <laughs> We're all having fun with it. Yeah, you had a question? I have a quick question. Um, so you guys were talking about dry hopping. Is there an optimal time? I know, Steve, you said one to two weeks is about how long you leave it in. If you were to leave the hops in when you're dry hopping for three or four weeks, does it leave any kind of negative impact on your beer? Or what types of flavors start to change when it's in there for that long? You know, I mean, in, our, in the experimentation, the research that we've done, you don't gain anything by leaving it in there longer. And in fact, you can, it can impart some more of the vegetal characteristics of the hops. And then you also uh, run into the danger of, you know, leaving the beer on the yeast for that long, which we try not to do, because that can add its own off flavors and, and things too. So, you know, it, it depends on the, the hop varieties, but for us, the one, one to two weeks has been optimal. It's, uh, you know, anything much less than a week, and we don't get the full character that we're looking for. So. Do you have a particular temperature that you prefer? Uh, just our fermentation temperature, 70 degrees. So. We usually dry hop when it's about a half, half degree Play-Doh from the end of fermentation. So. I'm laughing, I'm setting you up, Bert. <laughs> all right, so we, we actually um, also don't like to keep it in too long. So a week probably is a, a good maximum number. Um, I think what I don't like about dry hopping is, is, is if you keep it in so long that you get chlorophyll and grassy notes, um, which is, I mean, hops are vegetal, so it's going to happen. But just if you get an excessive amount of, of grassiness, it, I think it, it starts to detract from the bright notes that are in the hop. So what we do is actually we, we chill the beer first to about 52 Fahrenheit. And, um, and I'm a big component of, or proponent of uh, colder dry hopping and let the alcohol do the solubilizing the, the bright notes. So we, we dry hop at 52, and that's only at 52 for uh, 24 hours. And then we rouse it. Some people will do a pump, and they'll pump it, recirculate it. And we actually do a CO2 rouse, which some people would argue, oh, well, you're going to send CO2 through, and it's going to scrub out, and the aroma's going to go out the top. That's silly. But uh, they're, they, they, it's silly in the, in the sense that in the, in the amount of hop that we have in our beers, that it, there's no chance that we're not going to get good utilization of hop aroma and flavor. So my recommendation is one week. And then if, and if you're at, at home, you're home brewing, and you can't do that temperature, you know, just one week and then rack it off, allow for a second settling, and, and, then, and then, you know, get on to finishing your beer. So I don't think that there's a benefit, although there, there's differences with the whole cone versus uh, pellets, you know, when you're in the homebrew setting. So um, you're certainly going to get more uh, exposure with pellets and, you know, pellets solubilized. And, and then, like I said, we rouse it that second day to, as the pellets solubilize, they're heavier, they're going to settle to the bottom, so we rouse it. And then uh, it gets... Gets all those fine particles back into solution. Gets all that surface area contact, you know, and then the the beer gets to absorb all those uh, essential oils and um, as much as possible, and it's going to settle back out. Yeah, one thing I didn't mention is that we drop the yeast too before we dry hop. You know, I try to get as much yeast out of the since fermentation is almost done and the yeast is gathering at the bottom of the unit tank. Try to get that out of there first. And then we also recirculate or rouse it once we get the dry hops in uh, to, you know, to get some good uh, consistency there. Right. Uh, but we've found that by dry hopping at fermentation temperature, then we get a better, the beer drops brighter when we do crash cool it from 70 down to 34. You know, it really pulls the hop material and the yeast kind of pull out together and it drops brighter for us and filters better. So that's mainly the reason we do it at this point. Do you want to talk about the collaboration beer? Sure. <laughs> I just one point on that. We, these, these guys both filter their beer. We do not. We use BioFine for our beer, so it's a natural um, component that grabs onto the, the particles and drops out in cold fermentation. And uh, so currently we do not do any filtration like these guys do. We're looking at it right now. We're going getting a centrifuge this summer that we're going to play around with, so we'll probably be playing with you guys soon. So. <laughs> Okay, so uh, what we have here is a 
in front of you is the collaboration brew that our three breweries got together for just for this purpose, just for you all, just to have here at Savor. So give yourselves a hand. It's <laughs> it's so new that we don't have a name for it. And yeah. We just I th I think I think what we should do is let you guys name it. So we have two names. What do you think? Well, I put out uh, Belma on my mind, which is a new hop variety. <laughs> Belma is a hop variety that we used in this beer. What was the other? I don't even remember what the other uh, one was. Saber Salon IPA. Saber Salon IPA. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, in that case, uh, I, that's not going to be it. In that case, I vote for Belma on my mind. But now you got to realize, of course, this is going to be served in San Diego at Coronado Brewing Company, and so I think Belma on my mind is sweet. I like that. Anybody for Saber IPA? No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the BA. <laughs> Good Sorry, you lost, Danny. <laughs> well, we, we got some of it out here for you. So the three of us got together, and, and it wasn't the three of us, actually. Um, so it was uh, Jeremy and Chris from Stone, and it was um, Dan that actually ran the brew on the island, because mm -hmm. uh, uh, everybody know what San Diego, Coronado is? It's a peninsula, actually. It's yeah. on an island. <laughs> anyway, so that's uh, Coronado. Um, is uh is out on the island that's kind of our test brewery now so we have a 10 barrel system there with a the yeah. two barrel uh brew house as well that we do tests so where on. we used to brew everything yeah uh, so dan ran the brew and then ryan actually was kind of the glue that took all our inputs and uh sean showed up that's nice of him <laughs> he's the is he Brewmaster? Director of Brewing. Director of Brewing Operations. So he's, he's grown to that uh, level. He deserves it. And anyway, so we, our focus was to, to give you just another West Coast IPA that wasn't beers that we were serving individually. And so we got together and we pulled nice. in whatever new hot varieties we had in our cache of uh, whatever we got from the supplier, the hot farmer, or, or uh, just whatever sounded good to us. Um, to, that was new to try. And uh, so I think that is truly the spirit of West Coast IPA is to grab what, what new hop varieties that is coming through the breeding program, what the farmers are actually developing in their crosses. And, and then, uh, so we used Citra, which is not brand new, but new, but we also wanted some citrusy component. Um, we used Simcoe, actually used Simcoe first, great hop. Uh, and it just wouldn't be right if we didn't use some Simco in there. <laughs> plus, plus Chris just actually we, he wouldn't have survived it if we didn't use some Simco. <laughs> so, uh, so we use Simco and Citra, some some classic stuff. But we also brought into it some some newer hot varieties. Belma, uh, you guys brought in some Belma, which is very pungent, very I don't know how to describe it. So intense. It was probably one of the more pungent hops in the in the mix. So that's why I said. Belma on my mind would be a great name for it. Now we use some other stuff. Um, we use the uh, 324. 324. New experiment. So it's a numbered experimental variety. We haven't even, it hasn't even made it through all the trials uh, in the breeding program. So we used uh, 324 in the finish because it was more delicate. So we put that in the, in the Whirlpool and then I think we used a little uh, Amarillo in the finish. I'm missing one of the hot varieties. Um, that was, how many was that? Is that four or five? That was five, I think, because you mentioned Simcoe, right? There's a lot of Simcoe. Simcoe, Citra. Maybe I've got one notes the, uh, here. Belma, yeah, Amarillo, and, and yeah, yeah so that was it. Go. So uh, that's our five. So we did five. So again, hop extravagance is the target. It's the goal. Layering of the hop flavor, not to be so singular that it's harsh or brash, but yet adding more. Um, components, whether it's pungency or citrus or floral and any other things that you can think of uh, or, or that you detect. We'll, we'll ask you guys when we're done. And then we dry hopped it with, with three varieties. We introduced one other new variety. So we did Simcoe, Belma again, and Azaka. I had some Azaka that's very tangerine-like. And so we dry hopped it with those three varieties. And um, so, I don't know, maybe we should just open it up and ask you all what you think you get out of it. We went for a lighter golden color, 
which is kind of a classic San Diego type of a, an IPA, um, which is even maybe a little slightly, you know, a difference from other West Coast IPAs. If you look at our West Coast IPA, it has a, a rich caramel malt base, which is kind of a classic, you know, malt hop balance. And then there's been a real synergy towards a, a more golden and um, a lot of pale ale without crystal malt. So that sweetness isn't there. There's some Vienna malt in here that actually adds some good flavor and balance. And, um, well, I don't know, Dan did a good job finishing up the beer. It's nice and bright and golden. And any questions about the collaboration that Yeah, so the question is how often are they offering new hop varieties uh, or developing new hop varieties? They're, they're constantly in development. And I described to you the experimental hop field or the hop breeding company, HBC hop field that I've, I've been in. There's 10,000 different plant, individual different plants, they're crosses. And if they make it out of that field, then they, they go to a hill, which is nine plants, I think, yep. and then uh, you know, no, you got it. I mean, um, yeah, it's they they develop a lot of different ones every year. I mean, they're you know they're doing all kinds of um, development of different varietals, but the the vast majority of them don't make it. You know, even if they have really cool characteristics, they may not be resistant enough to, to disease. Um, you know, they may not get the yield per acre that the farmers need. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons to throw them out. And so it's, it's the rare ones that get through. And I think, I mean, these days between Pacific Northwest, European varieties and, you know, South Pacific, South, South Asia or whatever, I mean, there's definitely more than 10 a year coming out, I would say, you know, to, I yeah, mean, that actually make the cut. I mean, 10, what's 10 to 20 what's maybe? What's crazy and staggering about that 10,000 number is maybe two plants. Will, will survive to actual production. It's crazy. Yeah. Right? Not so good odds. It's, like you said, it's, it's uh, disease resistance, it's um, yield, yield and yeah. performance, and then, of course, the, the brewer's interest. Now, that's two plants out of 10,000 over a 10-year period. Again, yeah. it's crazy, staggering. So I think with the the changes in the brewing industry with Budweiser being bought out by InBev and then they were going to more hop extract and high alpha uh, hop varieties just for alpha, not for flavor at all. They used to use a lot of uh, Willamette, which is a very, very pleasant hop, and then they would blend in some other varieties to keep it more nondescript hop character. And with, without all that production, then the farmers came to uh, put more focus on the craft brewers. And the craft brewers are clamoring for more aroma hop varieties. So what you're seeing is growth in aroma hop, but you're also seeing development through the brewing programs that are high alpha aroma, and which is awesome. I think as brewers, we, best we, of we both love worlds. that. Yeah, we get the best of both worlds. So you can buy a, a hop and use it for, for bittering and then reinforce it the same hop variety with high uh, essential oils back on the cold side. Um, I think uh, they're, they're trying to shorten it. I think with the, the synergy and the craft brewing and the demand for new flavors, new what's next, what's new? You guys all want what's fresh, what's new, what's exciting? And, and for us to be able to deliver that, and actually our suppliers need to deliver as well on new, fresh, and exciting aroma flavors and profiles and so we actually get the opportunity to go to the farms or where they send us samples and we evaluate them and say hey yeah this is great or well boring you know or whatever so I think too much garlic too much garlic yeah there are some savory components yeah so yeah there's all kinds of crazy things that come out um, in the in the fields yeah some are onions some are garlic some are you know there's really savory components and they aren't typically things that we appreciate in beverage. If you think about what a beverage is, it's usually, you know, a little acidic, it's a little bit 
citrusy, you know, we think about all the beverages that you drink, whether it's iced tea or cola or uh, wine, there's, there's, you know, and, and beers, of course, um, tends to be acidic, bright, refreshing, um, cleansing on your palate, sweet, but with the right balance. So there was a question. There's a question back here. We'll probably uh, be the last one. Uh, we'll get out to the to the grand tasting uh, after this one, if that's okay. I'll try to keep it short. Um, so, Chuck, you mentioned that um, the West Coast IPA can be a little delicate in transit, and my understanding of India Pale Ale is that it was actually good. Um, you know, that it was brewed in England, that it was sent to India, that it was. Uh, extravagantly hopped and, and that it was uh, somehow better for transit purposes. So uh, I could be entirely wrong, but can you, I guess, just sort of address that? Thank you. Yeah, so the, the West Coast in particular, all I was referencing is the hop aroma, the, the, the delicacy of the hop aroma and the dry hop. So it certainly has enough bitterness to survive a voyage probably around the world a couple times, I think. Uh, but it's going to be a different beer. Um, so we've, we've come to be able to appreciate super fresh IPA. I'm talking one, one week, one month, two weeks, one month fresh. I mean, that's almost, that's like brewery fresh, you know, and, and to be able to ship it around the country, two months, three months, still bright and fresh. Okay, well, three, four months, if I have my certain fade it's not quite as citrusy it's not quite as you know so I'm talking about fine points on aroma and and flavor that that will that will fade so just those volatile components so in in and actually if you go back in time they weren't even using hops like that so we talk about historic uh, events of higher hop rates and higher alcohol to for a, an IPA to survive or IPA, they weren't necessarily even calling it IPA at the moment, it was just stronger, hoppier, pale ale, and then became IPA because they needed to make it stronger and hoppier so it would survive the voyage. So the microbial stability was there. It wouldn't become infected. And in fact, I don't think it was well received initially because it was too bitter. And they, they tried watering it down, you know, and then it became watery, bitter beer. And then, uh, so I, I think it just became an acquired taste at some point, and um, with you know resurgence of um, breweries, home brewers, uh, people that are interested in more flavor, then we started using um, more interesting hot varieties. So I, I think we just lose some of those interesting, delicate notes. That's all. Yeah. That's the only point. Yeah, they fall out. So you, you just want to drink them as fresh as possible. You know, um, we, I, I work on the distribution side more, so we, we actually try to get our wholesalers to shorten their orders so we can get them beer more frequently so it's um, fresher. Um, yeah. Well, Stone. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Let, okay. Let's see, let's hear from <laughs> these guys are the masters. Even to it. the point of how much we love those <laughs> amazing fresh aromas and flavors. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know that I mean that was sort of the point of our enjoy by IPA. It's right. It's a beer that 35 days from the day it's bottled and shipped, it's pulled from the shelf because the idea is to educate people that that these types of beers need to be consumed fresh. You know, they're a lot different than we, we've, you know, as brewers, we've taught people that we make certain beers you can lay down for years and they age gracefully and they taste even better, you know, five or ten years down the line. But we haven't done as good a job of, of educating people that these type of hoppy beers, you know, particularly West Coast IPAs, they're best consumed fresh. You know, as Chuck was saying, the hop flavor fades. And, uh, yeah, I think the, you know, the, the historical IPAs were a totally different thing. They weren't going for any hop aroma or flavor. They were just, you know, it was all kettle hops trying to, uh, you know, get the antibacterial properties and things to preserve the beer. So those, those beers weren't getting a lot of uh, hop character by the time they got to India. <laughs> and, and they are preserved still, so they, they taste good. Yeah, so the, the beer is still viable. I mean, yeah. you could probably drink these beers five years from now, but are they going to taste the same? They're not going to taste the same. They're going to, you know, become 
a more malt-centric or, you know, there'll still be an underlying bitterness. So the bitterness isn't going to go away. It, it'll still be there. It might round out or mellow out. Uh, the beer will still be good beer, but will it taste like a, a bright citrus frog's breath? Will it taste like a, you know, extravagantly, you know, grapefruity, tropical, floral, west coast, or whatever components we're getting into these beers? Um, no, I think that's going to fade off after, you know, six months, and it'll, it'll still be there, but it starts, you know, waning. So that's, that's why, you know, the, the note and the mention is like, hey, you know, don't hold on to it. Drink it as, as fast, you know, as, as you get it fresh. <laughs> we don't know yet. The, the question was, where is our East Coast brewery going to be for Stone? And uh, we don't know yet. We're narrowing it down. Right but, next uh, door to us. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't say any finalists yet, but uh, we hope to make a decision by the end of next month. So. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the Brewers Association, Saver, thank you so much for being here. Please give, please give it up to Chuck Silva, Rick Chapman, Steve Wagner. The uh, grand tasting is now in full swing. Please have a great time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2014, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2014, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.